I'm Bill Bubert, retired Army officer and a regular warfare practitioner and scholar. Welcome to Chasing Ghosts and a Regular Warfare Podcast, the show that examines the mythos, lost history, bad thinking, martial malpractice, and government incompetence that informs so much of a regular warfare. I want to peek behind the curtain at the vast machinery and briar patch politics of insurgency and counterinsurgency and everything in between. Now, let's go ghost hunting together. Hello, this is Bill, and welcome to episode 32 of Chasing Ghosts in a Regular Warfare podcast. This episode is called U.S. Military Special Operations Forces Can't Do Unconventional Warfare, part two. In the first episode of this two-part series, we discussed unconventional warfare and took that apart, teased it out, and tried to find out exactly what that is and why U.S. military and most Western forces, well, maybe I could say all Western forces, don't do that well. In this one, we're going to tackle a few other issues, and then we're going to discuss what's referred to as counter-unconventional warfare, inspired by Colonel Maxwell's paper on counter-unconventional warfare from 2014, which you can find on the web if you look it up. And um, that has been some of the source material for this very episode, and then excursions and discussions that we'll take in this episode. So... First of all, before we get to it, I'd like to wish everybody a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. I started this podcast in September 2022, promising a fortnightly battle rhythm of delivery, and so far, so good. There will be a slight one-day pause for delivery of the next episode, in which I will premiere a new, I guess you can call it an excursion, quite literally, what I called it, in the next episode episode, which will premiere in January of 2024, we will have a discussion of salvo competitions and strike complexes. Now, I know that sounds arcane, esoteric, or not very interesting. I'm going to make it very interesting, and I'm going to show you why if United States and Western forces don't take this into consideration as one of the means by which they revamp, reconstitute, and fix all of the problems in the military institutions in the West, all these other countries, near-peer and peer competitors, that are on the world stage as we speak are going to shove the United States and its Western allies and coalition forces off center stage, off the world stage, and turn them not into global hegemons, but into maybe regional hegemon minuses. So I look forward to that discussion. That will premiere in January of next year. Hard to think that in a week it's going to be next year, but there it is. I wanted to do a shout out to all of my both loyal listeners and new listeners. Welcome aboard. Thank you. And also the correspondence, the great correspondence that I receive especially from about a half dozen of you, which I have come to enjoy on a consistent basis. And you guys write me at cgpodcast at pm.me. That is cgpodcast at pm.me. So thanks for that. Again, happy holidays. I hope uh, everything is going well for you and yours, your family, friends, and the rest. And I wish you a prosperous new next year. So let's get to it. In the interest of time, I assume that most of you have listened to the previous episode, and if you have not, in the interest of saving you time on this episode, I am simply going to quote from 
JP, that is Joint Publication 3-05.1, which defines unconventional warfare as activities conducted to enable a resistance movement or insurgency, to coerce, disrupt, or overthrow a government or occupying power by operating through or with an underground, auxiliary, and guerrilla force in a denied area. Denied areas just so happen to be the same as non-permissive areas. One can look in military argo and see that almost as synonyms. A permissive environment is one where most likely you are invited or you're not going to be contested once you reach there. A non-permissive and denied area is going to be one that is probably not only hostile to any entry, in this case, by Western forces, U.S. forces, but most likely would put those forces in the hazard once they are on the ground. So I don't want to burden new listeners who may have tuned into this episode as your very first introduction to my bloviations on this subject since episode one. I wouldn't necessarily say that there is a linear sequence for my episodes, but I would say that if you start to listen to episode one, work your way forward, depending on your interest, you will find that a lot of the martial cultural IQ and ideas that I come up with in this podcast series are riffing off of previous conversations that we've had that I am building upon. So if there are times during this podcast or ones that you may have listened to in the past in which you're either confused or I'm employing acronyms you're not familiar with or whatever, if you had listened to previous ones, you might be on your way to a more complete understanding. While I don't think anybody has a monopoly on new ideas or innovations, I happen to think that most of the innovation that we see in society, whether from a STEM perspective or a martial or warfare perspective, is usually a result of cross-disciplinary ferment between various things in which you find that you happen upon it. Because if we look at an automotive battery, for instance, a chemical engineer and a mechanical engineer had lunch one day. Hence, we get innovations in automotive batteries. I wanted to give due credit in covering this particular episode to Colonel David S. Maxwell, U.S. Army Special Forces, who is also the associate director at the center or may have been the associate director at the Center for Security Studies in the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown. He's a retired U.S. Army SF colonel with command and staff assignments in Korea, Japan, Germany, the Philippines, and CONUS and has served as a member of the military, military faculty teaching national security at the National War College. My personal thanks to Colonel Maxwell for providing the onus and impetus for this podcast and this podcast series. While I am not a fan of the Small Wars Journal for a variety of reasons, I would urge you, if you get the opportunity, to go to a 2015 interview titled The Need to Understand and Conduct UW. The interviewer was Octavian Mania. And she interviewed Colonel Maxwell, and it's a really good and deep teasing out of what we're getting after, not only when it comes to unconventional warfare, but when it comes to countering unconventional warfare. You will find me employing some terms here, like anti-fragile forces and fragile forces, because for the most part, I always consider insurgencies to be anti-fragile and for counterinsurgencies to be fragile. If you want to listen to an in-depth discussion of those very notions, please go back to episode two of this podcast, and I discuss that very thing, and you guys can get a better understanding of it. What I find with this whole approach is that 
Given its comprehensive nature, effective counter unconventional warfare, we will call it CUW from this point forward, calls for an adaptive, holistic U.S. government, maybe whole of government, maybe whole of Western nations, allies, and coalitions to be partnered together in a fashion where they can conduct this successfully. But in order to conduct it successfully, one has to understand UW, unconventional warfare. And as I've emphasized before, this is the least practice and most underemployed modality in the special operations tool chest, if not the entire martial tool chest throughout the Western nations. You'll find in government circles they refer to this as JIM, which is Joint Interagency, Intergovernmental, and Multinational to include NGOs and such. Counter UW, it, it describes an overarching strategy that synchronizes irregular warfare and the JIM operations I just mentioned and activities to effectively counter adversary unconventional warfare campaigns. In this case, especially in the late 20th century and early 21st century, most likely characterized by what is called insurgencies. Now, historical experience shows that irregular warfare has been the predominant form of warfare since, some scholars say, 1775. I would tell you that this has been a large form of warfare east and west since the dawn of man, and they started clubbing each other. And in contemporary parlance where they discuss gray zone operations, hybrid warfare, and uh, these kind of things where you have this kind of this, this permeable barrier between traditional warfare, conventional warfare, and irregular warfare where they're starting to mix and match together and synchronize together in the way they conduct their affairs, whether that is pre-conflict, during the conflict, or post-conflict, and whether you're talking about the adversary that was allegedly defeated or forced into a stalemate or the victor. The heart of the matter is the U.S. government and the West lacks a cohesive irregular warfare strategy to begin with. And then underneath that, when it comes to taking out within that umbrella term of irregular warfare, unconventional warfare as a discipline or excursion therein, there is no grokking in the West as far as either how to conduct proper UW or at least, shall we say, instead of proper, efficacious and effective UW campaigns conducted by state and non-state actors. As much as the West likes to pride itself on the use of NGOs and the use of gym and the use of intergovernmental synchronization coordination activities, not only within the U.S., but the U.S. and the conflicts such as Afghanistan and Iraq in concert with other uh, nation states. I mean, this goes back to, of course, World War II, World War I. We'll confine ourselves to coalition and allied activities historically to the 20th century and beyond, not saying that in the 18th and 19th century. There weren't gym activities or allies and coalitions that forced the hand of either invaders or those who were fighting invasion. I would say that if it weren't for the French and the Spanish, the U.S. on the Atlantic seaboard in 1775 to 1783 in the great civil war against London to wrest themselves from the British Empire would not have succeeded in seceding if it hadn't been for French and Spanish support. So allied and coalition activities isn't anything new. You know, if, if they were serious about this to develop effective irregular warfare campaign plans, the joint force 
would improve their IW capabilities and develop operational art that would be based upon effective planning tools, which emphasize the human domain and all the components that are in here. But that's not quite the case. If you get a chance to take a look at it in 2020, the Department of Defense published a 12-page document called Summary of the Irregular Warfare Annex to the National Defense Strategy. And I think it was either last October or the previous fall, they authorized probably tens if not hundreds of millions of dollars uh, under an irregular warfare rubric to try to master this kind of war. Now, I don't think there's going to be much success in it. I do like the framing statement, the problem statement that they have, and I quote, IW is a persistent and enduring operational reality employed by non-state actors and increasingly by state actors in competition with the United States. Past U.S. approaches to IW have been cyclical and neglected the fact that IW, in addition to nuclear and conventional deterrence, can proactively shape conditions to the United States' advantage in great power competition. This reactive cycle fails to prepare the United States to conduct traditional warfare or irregular warfare effectively. All of these conditions are reversible and of, quote, you know, ambition's cheap. But of course, I see nothing in the current intellectual landscape nor initiatives in the DOD that sees them taking UW as a subset thereof of IW seriously enough to be able to do this. And while this episode confines itself to counter UW, if one doesn't master unconventional warfare, you can't counter what you don't understand and practice in the first place. And this is something I don't think the DOD has grokked. I did enjoy the fact that on page four, there is an entire paragraph called, we remain underprepared for irregular war. I would say unprepared, but apparently that's the way they wanted to frame it. Quote, our adversaries seek to undercut our global influence, degrade our relationships with key allies and partners, and shape the global environment to their advantage without provoking a U.S. conventional response. As we reorient the department towards great power competition, we do not have the luxury of discarding our well-honed advantage and ability to wage a regular war as we have done in the past. Well-honed ability. Please stop the madness. There is none. Well, I'm not going to bore you with any more reading from that particular document. Uh, there's quadrennial and um, the, these national defense strategy reviews that come out every four or five years. Every time I read them, I, I think to myself, man, there's a lot of fluff in there. There's a lot of ambition. But they rarely set down the stepping stones or touchstones or focal points that get you from A to B all the way to Z. It's always this flowery language that employs what we seek to do instead of how to do that very thing. Now, mind you, I don't want the DOD to tell their members within their respective services and such how to do something. Simply give them a mission statement, something that effectively tells them what needs to be done, what needs to be achieved, and an intent, and let them go with it. But they don't do that because despite the fact that we have adopted a variation of Auftragsstaktik, which is mission command, which is trusting lower subordinates to be able to make assumptions, corrections, and ad adaptations in whatever the mission is that they're fighting at the time, that is given lip service, but that is not the way the U.S. Army, and to a greater degree, all the armed forces work. Because in the end, the DOD, the U.S. Pentagon, is very sclerotic, arthritic, 
and incapable of seeding its centralized command planning and execution policies down to lower echelons to let them alone to do their job. Which, of course, brings one to the question of, well, is anybody doing counter-unconventional warfare right? Well, I think that we can find some cases where that's occurring. After 1989 and 91, when the USSR fell apart and calved off about a dozen Stan brothers on the underbelly and then became the more chopped and channeled Russia that we know of today and made a number of changes to their doctrine, they didn't necessarily change all of their doctrine but improve things that worked in the first place. The Soviet, for instance, the Soviet previous military doctrine was based on the principle of Maskarovka. Maskarovka is the art of using camouflage, denial, and deception, deception to achieve desired effects. And surprise, of course, is a key component of that. The key features of Maskarovka are the maintenance of plausible deniability, for instance, in clandestine action, concealment of forces, disinformation, or what they would call desinformatia, and the use of decoy or dummy structures to confuse opponents' ability to predict and respond to actions when one is developing actionable intelligence that is made as a result of sensors and analysts thereafter. Now, Russia's new generation warfare incorporates many key principles of Maskarovka by modernizing the principles through the use of new technologies. And they also have a gym and whole of government approach that they've employed as regional hegemons. And they're able to take advantage of that, not only because of the cultural IQ, not only because of some of the successful military doctrine that they borrowed from their Soviet past. For me, when I examined the literature, and I was looking for some case studies with this, and I examined, well, what did the Russians do in Lithuania in 1990-91? What did they do in Moldova, 1989-92? In Georgia, from 89-93 to and 2008, and the Ukraine, 2008 and 2014. And then, of course, now we are mired in the Russian special military operation in which the Russians, despite what you may hear in the news, have defeated wholesale and in detail three Ukrainian armies over the past 24 months that have also been plugged in with a lot of augmented intelligence, materiel, logistical support, and new weapons systems brought to them by the NATO midgets and the U.S. in the West. So I want to emphasize the point again. We are at a very early stage of adopting an effective counter-UW, and it is my assertion after examining these case studies that the Russians are at an intermediate, if not approaching an advanced stage, of not only grokking an understanding, but actually implementing counter-unconventional warfare. Now, some of those Russian TTPs, tactics, techniques, and procedures that I was able to define was they could do some of the following things. They can conduct detailed planning and preparation prior to major deployment, use exercises to preposition forces for action. They can use proxies or surrogates for subversive activities and establish conditions for future military operations. Exhibit A for this is I would ask all of my listeners to take the time to review the fall 2020 campaign between the Armenians and the Azerbaijan forces and what happened there. You will get a taste and a preamble and prelude to what future conflict is going to look like for the remainder of this century 
as far as UAVs, UAS, subversive measures with little green men who were non-tabbed uniformed forces of either surrogates or Russians who went in there prior to the start of the conflict to shape the conditions for making sure that the conflict went in the Russians' favor. They employed intelligence operatives to support separatists in the Ukraine outside of that eastern third where the Russian Donblas are. They recruited, organized, armed, conduct sabotage and subversion. Present actions as operations of independent groups whose interests merely happen to coincide with those of the Russian government. The powerful notion of, notion of issuing passports to ethnic Russians in the Ukraine in the eastern third third to claim it as acting in, def in the defense of its citizens, authorizing the deployment of forces. They supported and staged demonstrations that are pro-Russian, flags and, and uh, propaganda. Very savvy, much like I, I have to give the U.S. credit for being savvy at color revolutions, the Russians are also. Of course, in the eastern third of the Ukraine, they always supported, through a variety of means, leaders sympathetic to Russian interests. They employed forces with the unmarked uniforms and denial of presence, per the little green men I just discussed. They employed peacekeepers, I put that in quote, in Georgia to counter Georgian forces claiming self-defense. For instance, in Georgia 2008, they employed state-sponsored cyber operatives to disrupt Georgian government communications and the logistics infrastructure and the electronic and grid infrastructure. They would apply economic pressure. They would threaten to cut off gas supplies to the Ukraine and things like that. So the point that I'm making is that the Russians leverage coordinated counter unconventional warfare now as we speak. They, they have... I wouldn't necessarily call anybody masters of it, but they're way ahead of the power curve when it comes to leveraging, exercising, shaping, and taking advantage of hybrid gray zone and unconventional warfare operations way ahead of the curve compared to the West. So how can the United States and the West and our allies, both in the Pacific and the Atlantic, gain an advantage, teach themselves this, finally find a way to not only conduct UW, but to conduct counter-UW. Well, it goes without saying that if you're not masters of unconventional warfare, which the U.S. and the West is not, but you're a master of FID, foreign internal defense, which American soft forces, and I would say Western soft forces, have a pretty good handle on, as I discussed in an earlier episode, whereas foreign internal defense goes to host countries and permissive environments where they are invited to teach everything from raid tactics to tier one tactics, whatever the case may be, and the whole gamut in between of those skills. And having the strategic vision to do so in a way where you take that foreign internal defense modality, that FID, and you find a way to turn it into training to shape the conditions to be able to do it in non-permissive environments. You need a whole-of-government-and-a-gym approach, of course. And here we're going to come to the part of the podcast where any of my Special Forces brothers who are listening in are going to go, Bill, have you lost your bloody mind? And here's what I'm going to offer up. Direct action. Drunk on DA. Kicking down doors. Shooting people in the face. The whole Hollywood stereotype of the guy driving the rifle, driving the pistol, driving these close-quarters battle choreographies taking down 
terrorists, insurgents, whatever the case may be, during the conduct of counterinsurgency, for instance, in the last two decades plus. Now it's going on a quarter century, isn't it? Here's my ask of special forces, U.S. Army special forces. As a matter of fact, here's my ask of everybody but Tier 1. That would be CAG. That would be Delta and those guys. Stop the DA missions. Go back to UW. It doesn't mean you can't be good in riflery or pistol craft or lethal violence at the three, one to three meter limit or open hand combat or any of the rest. It doesn't mean any of that. What it means is that you've got to concentrate on the skill sets that since 1952, if not earlier, because I'll take you back to Rogers Rangers if you want in the 18th century, because I think that we can see the, the roots and the, the birthing activities, as it were, back then that shaped what is American Special Operations Forces today, especially U.S. Army Special Forces. Those roots are you guys, you studs, go behind enemy lines, you go in non-permissive environments, especially with the emerging near-peer and peer conflicts that we're seeing in front of us, whether we like it or not, and you train folks up to standard behind enemy lines so that as a force multiplier, a small 8, 10, 12-man team goes behind enemy lines to raise platoons, companies, battalions, regiments, possibly brigades. Who knows, depending on your success. You saw what, for instance, the peak guerrilla forces from 1916 to 1922 did under the auspices of Leto Vorbeck, T.E. Lawrence, and Michael Collins among other, many other worthies of the time who were pulling off these very disproportionate strategic surprises as a result of doing their homework and doing it well. So again, my SF brethren and all of you in the soft forces, I'm not saying to put the gun down, put the guns down, not master CQB, not master the kill houses, not look like the studs that you guys are, and not have that basic and intermediate mastery of armed and unarmed conflict from one meter to 2,000 meters. Do that. You should have that. As a gun guy, I think that guns are a lifestyle for me. It has shaped how I behave, what I do. But when it comes to the unconventional warfare mission, that is but a single component of arrows in a very large quiver to raise partisan forces behind enemy lines in denied and non-permissive areas in the conflicts to come. And we don't have a single entity in the United States Armed Forces. I'd have to look at NATO and see. I don't think the NATO midgets do either. That would do that very thing in an effective fashion. And I told you in a previous episode what's happened with the Air Force. The Air Force had sort of a very interesting blue-collar fit modality where they would go and they would help raise air forces in third world and developed nations. Now, those are being shunted to the side and being defunded. My ask is simple. My ask is that go back to your roots. Go back to being the quiet professionals. Go back to doing the very things that really put the special in special forces. Go back to unconventional warfare where you men are going behind the enemy lines, putting yourselves in the hazard. And by the way, in order to do unconventional warfare well, 
you're not going to do it in six-month rotations. You're not going to do it in 12-month rotations. If America and the West are serious about not only unconventional warfare but counter-unconventional warfare, it will be all about developing relationships. It will all be it will be all about cultural IQ. It will be all about speaking the language. It will be all about mastering the basics. As I mentioned in a previous podcast, what makes SF so cool and soft, so cool, besides being good looking and smarter than the average Joe, is the fact that they are masters of the basics because we know in any task, whether you are a blue collar worker or a white collar worker, if you're in STEM or you're in plumbing or, or you're an electrician, whatever the case may be, if you haven't mastered the basics of your craft and your trade, it is impossible for you to teach intermediate and advanced skills well. But if you master the basics, and by the way, this applies to everything that you do in your life, whether it's how you make money or how you rear your family, it's mastering the basics. That's what it really comes down to. And of course... I have to give a nod to Jocko Willenick with his brilliant three-word slogan, freedom is discipline. Embrace that along with the suck. So here's the bad news, gentlemen. Kicking down the doors, conducting close quarters battles, CQB, doing all the cool rifle stuff that Hollywood always gives a nod to in the movies. Leave that to the 0311s, the infantrymen and the Marines. Leave it to the 11 Bravos and the infantrymen in the U.S. Army. Leave it to the Special Tactics Forces in the U.S. Air Force. Those guys are studs. Leave it to all of them to do that. Take up the challenge and make yourselves not only the unconventional warfare masters that you once were, but once one has mastered that, then one can become a counter UW master because you can't do it without that. And then it provides for a massive campaign, hopefully four-star level ability to do so, to synchronize these activities with regular conventional and trad warfare activities. The creation of these partisan and resistance unconventional warfare forces would be an easier way, now I'm going to correct myself there, it would be another way, possibly, possibly, to defeat existing insurgency elements in country. Because the way America, NATO, the Allies, and our allies in the Pacific have been doing this simply doesn't work. And also, if one masters counter-unconventional warfare, you can almost neutralize that home turf advantage. And this should be an operational transformation of all special operations activities across the board with this new starting block. Now, Colonel Maxwell wrote this 26 September 2014, almost a decade ago, in that paper I cited, Counter-Unconventional Warfare White Paper, Quote, the U.S. government lacks a cohesive irregular warfare strategy to counter adversary unconventional warfare campaigns conducted by state and non-state actors, and this has hindered the U.S.-NATO response to Russian aggression in the Ukraine. Mind you, this was written in 2014, not today. The U.S. government must develop a comprehensive framework to plan and execute regional global IW strategies and operations that counter 
adversary unconventional warfare campaigns as part of a whole-of-government approach. This includes policies and procedures to establish roles, responsibilities, and establish authorities to conduct IW campaigns to counter adversary UW operations. End of quote. I urge all of you to take a look at this paper. I don't agree with everything, but the good work that Colonel Maxwell has done is that he's knocked on the door, he's opened the door, he's thrown this rhetorical grenade in, and he's told everybody, unfuck yourselves. I'd like to end with a quote from T.E. Lawrence. Quote, it seems that rebellion must have an unassailable base, something guarded not merely from attack, but from fear of it. End of quote. Sacred cows make the best burgers. America, in this tiny little corner of unconventional warfare, in this tiny little corner of special operations forces, in this tiny little corner of SOCOM, is but a scintilla, an inkling of all the reform that has to happen in the U.S. military structure and the NATO structure to reverse the losing streak since 1945 in irregular warfare and, mind you, in conventional warfare. So, thanks for listening to this episode. A little bit of housekeeping. As all of you know, my wife and I, all our children are growing now, all five of my children, and now I have, uh, by, the, by summer of next year, I will have seven grandchildren. I am blessed. We're here on the Gulf Coast in Florida. We are returning Floridians, not locusts from up north. It's great to be here. Love our house. I now have my library set up in the bunker, and it is a glorious place for me to read, to think, and just to relax. I've uh, found some good friends here. And as a matter of fact, thanks to this podcast, JB, I'm looking at you. I found some uh, other friends here. I hope to get a visit from others. So please, I want you all to have a great holiday. Merry Christmas. And remember, Christmas isn't necessarily about the gifts, which are my favorite part, but it's, it's the experience, it's the warmth, it's being with family, it's being with friends, and take that seriously, and do your best with it, and remember, don't you wish that people could treat you as well the rest of the year as they do this, this one month of December? So with that, thank you for listening, thanks for increasing my listenership, I am on Twitter, at WBupert. And you'll find me there. Would love for you to follow me. Would love for you to ask questions, comments on X concerning this episode or previous episodes. So be sure to correspond with me at my email account, which is cgpodcast at pm.me. That is cgpodcast at pm.me. For those who have written me already, thank you for everything. And this is Bill, out. Out.